John chapter 20. We've put it on the screen so that we can all read the same version together. Um, And I'm going to ask you if you would join, please, with me. And let's read the word of the Lord. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Let's read. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking, he he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Let's bow together, shall we? We love you, Lord. And we're thankful for this day that we can come together in-house and online, and we can celebrate. We can celebrate the hope that we have in the resurrection. And now, Lord, I ask that you will open our hearts, that we may hear and receive your word, and that we may hear Not so much what the preacher is going to say, but that we can hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I lift up to you other life-giving churches, and I pray that as the gospel is being proclaimed, especially on this day, that your blessing will rest on those churches, and that there will be a great harvest of souls. And Lord, I lift up to you the needs and the concerns that are on the heart of the people who have gathered for this time of worship. Lord, only you know the burdens that we carry, the struggles that we have. But you do know. So I'm asking, Lord, that you will give attention to these things as we cast our cares, our burdens, our problems, our disappointments, we cast them all upon you. We ask for your divine help. Touch your people today, O Lord. Extend your grace and your mercy to touch them right at the point of their need, I pray. And Lord, I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray that you will draw them to a place of repentance. And I pray especially, O Lord, for sons and daughters who have wandered away from the faith. I pray that you will draw them. Send the Holy Spirit after them. Don't let one of them be lost, I ask. And I pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It won't come as any surprise for me to tell you that the cancel culture of our day has drawn a bullseye around the basic tenets of the Christian faith. 
there have always been skeptics and critics, but, but it seems as if the pressure has intensified and the arguments have become louder and shriller. More and more, people are questioning the veracity of the claims made by the Bible in the church. Instead of the Bible being the standard by which lives are measured, experience has now become the matrix by which the Bible is judged. In this climate, it isn't surprising that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most challenged tenets of faith by those who would seek to discredit and dismiss the importance and the relevance of following Jesus today. According to the Bible's own claims in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, the resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. So if the foundation is destroyed, then everything collapses. Today, on this Easter Sunday morning, I want to respond to the critics and give a reason why I refuse to submit to the cancel culture when it comes to the proclamation of the blessed truth of the resurrection. Right on the front end of this message, it's important to define the term resurrection. First of all, resurrection is not reincarnation. The idea of reincarnation is found in certain Eastern religions. In actuality, reincarnation is considered a curse, not a blessing. According to reincarnation, the evil that you experience in this life is the punishment for your soul's behavior in a previous life. And if you don't act properly in this life, your soul is sentenced to live yet another life after this one. The goal of reincarnation is to one day get it right so as to escape the cycle of coming back over and over and over and over and over again. Next, I would tell you that resurrection is not resuscitation. Simply bringing a corpse back to life isn't a resurrection. A person who has resuscitated returns to this earthly life, but at some point will again die. By contrast, resurrection is the raising of someone who is dead to eternal life. In a resurrection, the resurrected person is given a new life, a life that is uh, soul spirit housed in a body, but the body is of a different substance. It's a body that is no longer subject to the limitations of the physical body. Instead, it's a body that is incorruptible, and the resurrected person is immortal. Now, there are a lot of reasons I could give you today as to why I proclaim that the resurrection is real. But in the interest of time, I'm only going to talk about two of them. The first reason to believe the resurrection is real is because of the testimony of the tomb. I can state with certainty and authority that the resurrection is real because the tomb is not empty. That's right, you, you didn't misunderstand me. I did not misspeak. It's right here in our text. In verses four and five, the Bible says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. John, being the younger, 
I always like to just stop and pause on that statement for a moment. John being younger. It just, it just blesses me. He outran Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He stooped down and looked into the tomb, and the Bible says he saw. Verse 6 says that Peter then arrived and went into the tomb, and there he saw. And finally, verse 8 says that John also entered the tomb and saw. Three different times these disciples saw, but what our English translations don't convey is the variation of degrees and the color that is contained in the original language. Each time the English word saw is used, but in the original, there are three different words used to describe the action of these disciples. In verse 5, when John stooped down and saw, the word used to describe that action is the word blepo. It's a word that means to glance at something, to, to notice or to observe something. <clears throat> Have you ever had someone ask you the time right after you looked at your watch? Have you ever had that happen? What, what do you do? You look back at your watch, don't you? Why? Because the first time you just blepoed. You glanced at it, but the specifics didn't register. That's what John did when he stooped down. The Bible says he blepo. What? He saw the linen wrappings. See, the tomb is not empty. There are linen wrappings there. And then Peter entered the tomb in verse 6 and saw, and that word is theoreo. It means to behold. It means to take time to study, to make careful observation. So Peter entered the tomb and examined the linen wrappings. He paid special attention to the fact that the cloth that had covered the face was separate from the other cloth. He observed that the shroud wasn't scattered about the tomb or crumpled and piled in a heap over in the corner. It was neat and orderly, laid out on the table, laid out on the slab as if the body had been there but was now absent while the cloth itself was undisturbed. The face cloth was just where the face should have been, but the face wasn't there any more than the rest of the body was there. So John blepoed and Peter theoreoed. Then verse 8 says that John entered and saw, and there the word is ido. It's the word for perception. It means everything clicks. The light bulb turns on. It means to perceive with understanding. Or better yet, it means to have revelation. That's why verse 8 says John saw and believed. The light bulb turned on. I know. Oh, I get it. Ah. He not only recognized what he was seeing, but he understood what it meant. First, John noticed, then, Peter examined, and finally, John perceived. The degree of observation is different, but the object is the same. What both Peter and John saw was that the tomb wasn't empty. The testimony of the tomb is that there are grave clothes, but the body is missing. See, if only the spirit of Jesus had come back to life, his body would have remained and the grave clothes would not have been empty. If somebody had broken in and stolen the body, they surely wouldn't have taken the time to strip it before removing him from the tomb. 
If the disciples had mistakenly gone to the wrong tomb, there would have been nothing there to see. If Jesus hadn't really died, but had merely resuscitated, if he had swooned and then came back a few hours later, he wouldn't have removed the shroud around his body and then carefully laid it back on the slab to give the appearance that it hadn't been disturbed. Handling and carefully examining the grave clothes lets us know that the disciples weren't hallucinating and they weren't dreaming. Without ever saying a word, those linen strips of cloth bear silent witness to the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You can believe the resurrection is real because the tomb is not empty. The grave clothes are left behind to bear witness that Jesus is risen just as he promised. There's a second reason you can believe the resurrection is real. Not only because of the testimony of the tomb, but also because of the transformation of the disciples. You know, when Jesus was arrested, the Bible records that uh, the disciples scattered, they fled. Their hopes had been dashed, their dreams had been destroyed. They went into hiding, fearing for their lives, disavowing any connection with the one they had so faithfully followed for the last three years. James, the biological half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah all the time he was growing up with him on earth. In fact, he and his siblings were so convinced Jesus was crazy that they at one point wanted to Baker Act him, have him committed to an institution. Does anybody remember hearing about a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus was decidedly anti-Christian. He did everything in his power to destroy the fledgling group of believers before they could even gather steam. Talk about disillusioned, skeptics, cynics, unbelievers. This group is exhibit A for those most unlikely to believe in the resurrection. And yet... Every one of these people and hundreds more just like them give unequivocal eyewitness testimony that they saw the resurrected Jesus. As a result of their experience, their lives were transformed into ardent, passionate followers of Jesus and defenders of the message of the resurrection. Many, many of you are no doubt familiar with the name Charles Colson. He was known as the hatchet man of the administration of President Richard Nixon. He was one of the men involved in the Watergate scandal that ultimately brought about the resignation of President Nixon. Well, Colson later surrendered his life to Jesus. He was sent to prison and then was released after serving his sentence and then he formed a ministry to which he devoted the rest of his life. Charles Colson had this to say about the resurrection. He wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. He said Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetrated by the most powerful men in America who were the closest aides and intensely loyal to the President of the United States. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence to testify against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the President about what was really going on. Two weeks. 
The cover-up, the lies could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumps ship in order to save themselves. He goes on and he says, now the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were not just facing embarrassment or political disgrace. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. He goes on, he says, don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And then he writes this conclusion. He says, you see, men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they know to be false. You think about it. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Then he saw the resurrected Jesus and became the powerful preacher on the day of Pentecost. He introduced the gospel to the Gentiles. He, was, he endured imprisonment, torture, and according to tradition, was eventually crucified upside down for his faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, thought Jesus had lost his mind. After seeing his resurrected brother, he became a believer and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was martyred for his faith also. The Bible tells us that James worshipped Jesus. That's a great statement. Think about that. What would it take for your brother to worship you? I have a younger brother. Most days, he would probably tell you I'm a pretty good guy. But the very idea of my brother worshiping me is outlandish and laughable, just like you guys are laughing. Tell you, the only way my brother would worship me is if he could see something that would prove to him beyond any doubt that I was God. Saul the Pharisee who was intent on destroying the church, he saw the resurrected Jesus and became Paul the Apostle. His missionary journeys expanded the Christian faith all over the Roman Empire. His letters to the churches and to young believers comprised two-thirds of the New Testament. His faith cost him his head at the chopping block of the Roman Emperor Nero. I'm telling you that one of the most convincing reasons to believe Jesus is resurrected is because of the transformation of the disciples from disillusioned and terrified followers and disbelieving skeptics and vehement antagonists into courageous, unapologetic believers. In light of the resurrection, they finally understood the true meaning of the cross. The resurrection caused them to understand that the cross was the place where Jesus paid the full price to redeem you from the bondage and penalty of sin. 
At the cross, Jesus bore your sins. At the cross, he carried your grief. At the cross, he signed your pardon. At the cross, he paid your ransom. At the cross, he bore your shame in his own nakedness. At the cross, he satisfied the demands of a holy God by being the only man to die without sin. At the cross, he conquered your enemies. At the cross, he thwarted Satan's plans. At the cross, Jesus took your place. He let them nail his hands so yours could be lifted up in praise. He let them nail his feet so yours could be free to walk in his light. He let them break his heart so yours could be mended. He let them give him a crown of thorns so you could wear a crown of glory. He let them offer him a bitter cup so you could drink from the living water. He let them beat his back so you could be healed. He let them mock him so you could have dignity. He let them drag him to an unjust courtroom so you could be justified. He let them take away his rights so you could have grace. He let them put him through agony so you could be restored. He let them scream at him so you could have peace of mind. He allowed himself to be separated from the Father so you could be reconciled with the Father. He allowed himself to die so you could live. And when they had done their worst to him, it seemed that death had won. It seemed that death had won when a Roman soldier thrust a spear into the side of a redeeming Savior and blood and water came pouring out onto parched ground. It seemed that death had won when Jesus cried, It is finished! Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He expelled his last breath And the earth quaked, the heavens roared, and the angels wept. It seemed that death had won on Saturday as his body lay in a sealed tomb borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea with guards posted outside. Every imp And every demon of darkness rejoiced over what Satan seemed to have pulled off, the final demise of God. And it seemed that death had won. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior. But early on the morning of the first day of the week, a cry rang out from the deep recesses of the tomb and echoed through the corridors of hell. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The demon sneered in mocking response. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, was the reply. 
into the stunned silence, the voice once again called, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. All creation responded with one last gasp of hope. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And with that triumphant cry, resurrection power broke the chains of death. And the linen shroud couldn't hold him. And the sealed tomb at the entrance couldn't hold him. The sting of death itself couldn't hold him. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor over death's dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Glory be to God forever. Now, when you, when you read the story of the appearances Jesus made to his followers after his resurrection, you discover that they invariably have the same reaction. Without exception, these once disheartened, disillusioned, even disbelieving people come to the same amazing conclusion. Jesus is risen, and Jesus is Lord. After Mary Magdalene had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, she bore witness to this truth. She came to the disciples and announced in John 20 and 18, I have seen the Lord. After Thomas felt the nail scars and the pierced side of the resurrected Jesus, he proclaimed his worship and exclaimed in John 20 and 28, my Lord and my God. Peter preached about it on the day of Pentecost when he said in Acts 2 and 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That word Lord means one having power and authority over others. And this is the universal witness of those who have seen the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He's not just a Lord, he is the Lord. He's not just Lord over some things, he's Lord over all things. I want to tell you, he's Lord whether you believe in him or not. He's Lord whether you surrender to him or not. He's Lord whether you agree with him or not. Jesus is Lord over all. That means he's Lord over your anxiety. He's Lord over your addiction. He's Lord over your brokenness. He's Lord over your disease. He's Lord over your depression. He's Lord over your failure. He's Lord over your heartache. He's Lord over your insecurity. He's Lord over your career. He's Lord over your loneliness. 
He's Lord over your unbelieving spouse. He's Lord over your unsaved children. He's Lord over your unpaid bills. He's Lord over your yesterday. He's Lord over your today. He's Lord over your destiny. He's Lord over your eternity. There is no sphere. There is no kingdom over which his lordship does not extend. And you may choose to ignore his lordship today. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 proclaims, There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm telling you, because of the resurrection, Jesus Christ is Lord. Somebody give him praise if you believe that today. Before we get out of here today, I want to very quickly give you three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is important to your life right now. See, at the cross, Jesus took all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin, so you don't have to bear it. The resurrection proved that he is who he claims to be and that he has accomplished what he claims or what he came to do. The resurrection proclaims your past can be forgiven. That's what it means in Colossians 2 and 14. He has forgiven all our sins and canceled every debt we owe. Christ had done away with it by nailing it to the cross. See, this is God's pardon program. Jesus paid for your guilt, and that means you don't have to pay for it. When you come to Jesus and you believe in him, he will deal with all of your past. No matter how messed up your past may be, he will give you a new beginning. Because of the resurrection, your past doesn't determine your future. I need to say that again to somebody because somebody didn't quite get that. Because of the resurrection, your past doesn't determine your future. Not only does the resurrection mean your past can be forgiven, it also means your present can be managed. You know, I meet a lot of people who say to me, My life is just out of control. I feel powerless to change the situation. I I feel powerless to break the habit. I I feel powerless to make any adjustments. I'm being carried along on a stream over which I have absolutely no control. Let me tell you, what you need is a power greater than yourself. You can't do it, so you need a power greater than you are. Well, let me give you some good news. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, How incredibly great is his power to help those who believe him. The same, somebody shout same. Same. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is available right now to help you rise above your problems. The same power God used at the resurrection can be used in your life right now. See, see, you don't know what your future holds. Neither do I. I don't know what's going to happen next year, next month, next week. I don't even know for sure what's going to happen when you leave this service. Truth is, it doesn't matter. Because even though it's out of my control, it's not out of God's. He will give the power 
to face it. No problem is too big for him. No situation is hopeless if you'll turn it over to him. I'm talking about your situation is not hopeless if you turn it over to him. He has proven by the resurrection that even death itself isn't a problem when you put your trust in the resurrected Lord. Your past can be forgiven. Your, your present can be managed. And third, I want you to see that the resurrection means your future can be secure. And the Bible says that Jesus was resurrected as the first fruits. That simply means he set the example. He prepared the way. He was the forerunner of what is yet to happen to those who die with faith in him. That's the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15 and 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It is the resurrection of Jesus that gives the hope that this present life isn't all there is. But there is a better and brighter day that is coming. You know, in the last two days, I've participated in two funerals in two different cities. Friday morning, we had a service here. And then I left right after that service and drove about six hours to another city and yesterday morning was in a service and part of that funeral service. And that was a double service. It was two people who had died within two days of each other, a, an 86-year-old father and his 62-year-old daughter. And we weep over that, we grieve. And nowhere does the Bible say we shouldn't grieve. In fact, I would suggest to you that if it was important for Jesus to come and stand outside the tomb of his friend by the name of Lazarus, even when he knew that shortly he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but if it was important enough for Jesus to stand there and weep, I think it's okay for us to grieve over the enormity of our loss. And sometimes I think Sometimes I think we get too religious. We just try to rush through the grief, rush through the pain. We need to sit in it a minute and feel it. And that's okay. But don't get stuck there. When the loved one who has died, died in faith. Because the Bible clearly tells us we, do, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For we know that there is a better and brighter day coming. I want to tell you, the resurrection means that death does not have the final word in this world. God has the final word about this whole thing. He is the one who declares that there is coming a day when not only he rose from the dead, but he was the first fruits, which means that all who die in Jesus will also be raised with the same imperishable body. Mortal will put on immortality. Corruptible will put on incorruption. We'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet of God. And together we will rule and reign with Jesus forevermore. So I'm going to tell you, the future isn't depressing. The future isn't fearful. The future is full of hope. The future is secure 
because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. I need to bring this message to a close. As I do, I have three questions for you. Number one, would you like to have everything you've ever done wrong completely forgiven? Number two, would you like to have the power necessary to manage the problems in your present? And number three, would you like to have the assurance that your eternal future is secure? That's the difference the resurrection can make. I have to tell you, it's not enough to just believe it. You've got to take some action steps in order to apply it and to receive it. Now, I'm aware that people come to church on Easter for different reasons. Some of you come because it's the traditional thing to do. You come, come to church on Easter. Others come be, because a friend invites you. Some of you may have come because a family member threatened you. Or maybe they bribed you. Well, hey, whatever you have to do to get them here, I'm okay with that. It doesn't really matter why you think you came here today. The truth is, you're not here by accident. When all is said and done, the real reason you're here is because God brought you here. He did. He brought you here so he could say something to you. Let me tell you what God wants to say to you today. He wants to say, you matter to me. I understand everything about your life. I sent my son to die for you. I want you to get to know me. I'm talking to some people right now. You've been close to God in the past, but, but you've drifted away. God has something to say to you as well. If you've drifted away, he would say to you in Isaiah 54 and 7, with deep love, I will welcome you back. You matter to God. And he brought you here today to tell you that. Nobody will ever love you as much as Jesus. Nobody. Jesus died for you to prove how much he loves you. Jesus was resurrected to demonstrate his power to take care of everything in your life that is wrong. If even death must bow to his lordship, surely what you're dealing with can be handled. Your past can be forgiven. Your present can be managed. Your future can be secure. The way to receive his help is very simple. Believe plus receive equals become. It's really that easy. And if you're ready to take that step of faith, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. In fact, just so that nobody feels singled out or, or, or uncomfortable, I'm going to ask everyone if you will just simply repeat this prayer after me and repeat it, though, as an honest expression of your heart. Would you bow with me and let's repeat this prayer? Lord, I admit that I am guilty before you because I have sinned. 
I'm sorry for my sins. And now turn from them to you. I give my life, all that I am, to you. I surrender. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Give me your spirit. And make me the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you for answering this prayer. In the name of Jesus. Amen.